We're back with part two of a survivor from Lifeline who is sharing her experience. Welcome back. Um, I'm going to start this segment with some more of the kind of crazy stuff that we've been talking about. But the quiet room, could you tell me what that was? You were never in it, but you know what it was about, right? Yeah. So the quiet room, it was essentially a closet. And generally we kept like the chairs for family support night in there. Um, but yeah, if someone was acting out or being loud, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. um, in group, Mm -hmm. just disruptive in group, um, then they would go to the quiet room. (laughs) And so you were basically locked in this room and it was just a weird room. Like it always smelled weird. It was like carving all over in the walls and the door in there like you could see where people were like scratching at the doorknob mm-hmm. like underneath it to maybe like pull the doorknob out or something mm-hmm. um and you could always hear kids i mean they would usually lose their shit to be honest with you when they went to the quiet room just because it, you didn't really get to you didn't get to choose anything in lifeline and you definitely didn't get to choose like how long you went in the quiet room um so yeah they were just kind of in there it wasn't like a situation like kids would say like i need to go to the bathroom or like i i remember kids like screaming like i'm gonna shit myself like mm-hmm. they were just kind of like well do it in there like so no one came and let them out to go to the restroom no because they were too out of control to use is how, a toilet <laughs> yeah but, but the reason you know this happens because you could hear the screams and them coming from the quiet room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was relatively close to the like main group room. Okay. There was kind of just a curtain that separated this little extra section where the quiet room was. Um, so yeah, it would, we could hear everything. Okay. Okay. Um, and another thing that happened, you kind of alluded to earlier, is the crazy things people did to try to get out of Lifeline, the the acts of desperation, suicide attempts. Can you explain, you know, how they would usually do that? Yeah. Um, I think most of that experience I had was just, like, with the girls that were there with us. Uh-huh. Um, occasionally we would hear about what the guys were doing uh-huh. in group. Um, but like I said earlier, people would drink, you know, like hand sanitizer or like any cleaning product they could find mm-hmm. a lot of the time bleach was like a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just kind of weird. Cause then they'd have to get honest in the group and they would get in trouble <laughs> and set back. And then it was a whole other thing, which I'm. I don't know. For me, that that was kind of always a problematic part was just that it was that same situation with the girl that was pulling her toenails out like they needed help, like, um, but they weren't really getting it. They were just getting punishment afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, I mean, this is just more of a, like, you, I just always wondered, like, what Lifeline was telling their parents <laughs> A legitimate question, who knows, you know, but the fact that the kids were so desperate they would do extreme things, it really could have killed them. I mean, drinking 
bleach. I mean, yeah. You think some of them? Well, that's speculating, but it just seems desperate to me. Like a, a yeah. desperate act, a, a very loud cry for help. Um, and we also talked about sometimes, and it was kind of part of the quiet room too. People having accidents in group, the girl side specifically. Um, why did mm-hmm. that happen? Just from, I kind of said earlier that if you were like asking in group to like use the restroom and I mean, the whole group could notice it was kind of, it, it was another thing to be confronted on. Um, so people, I at least felt like I always tried really hard to not have to use the restroom right. if it was group time. Cause we kind of just had designated times that we could use the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, and you all went like and filed in and, you know, used the restroom. Um, but there was a girl that it was known that her mental state was just not the same as the rest of the groups. Mm-hmm. She had like the mental state of like an eight year old and she, the accidents were pretty constant with her. Um, it would happen in group. It would happen like every single night we had to change and wash sheets like she would just, and she would just kind of have to sit there and group after she peed her pants. Like it was an awkward thing. And I remember her, like at some point she just kind of, she would just do it and not even say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I assume no, I mean, did anyone give her clean underwear and pants after this happened or did they just make her sit in it? She just sat there and then it would be like, someone would sometimes notice and then, mm-hmm. and then after the group was over, like, be like, Oh my gosh, I guess I have to take her to change. Like it was just kind of a weird thing, but right. especially in that instance, um, being a mom of a six year old, I am like, why we knew that about her. Like, why were we not making some sort of like plan or accommodation I was just thinking about right. that <laughs> this morning. I was like, why were, why did Lifeline not have an old comer at the very least? The least thing they could have done was have an old comer take her to the bathroom like every hour or something. Right. You know, right. Like, or just check in with her or like make sure it wasn't like a humiliating thing. Mm-hmm. But on the girl side specifically, I think as women, we just have a harder time holding our bladder, but mm-hmm. it was embarrassing to have to get up in the middle of group and go to the, restroom and possibly be confronted for it later you know right um speaking of embarrassing things you had something happen to you uh, <laughs> and when you uh constipation is apparently an issue in programs so could you explain what happened to you i know it's embarrassing yeah. but it's no no it's fine i um yeah i got really constipated for like three weeks i think it was at least three weeks Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am in so much pain. And I was just writing a request, like constantly, like some, like a medical request uh-huh. on like a slip of paper all the time, um, every chance I could, because I was so miserable. And I knew it was that was not normal. <laughs> so finally, they were like, okay, well, we're gonna have to give you an enema. And um, so yeah, I they took me into what was called the infirmary, which is this room with these big glass windows. And it sits at the back of the main group room. Mm -hmm. Um, and the 
nurse came in and like gave me my enema uh-huh. and then they were like okay well now you have to hold it for so long and group is going on during all of this just just embarrassing it kind of goes back to that thing of being like a teenager and mm-hmm. having the boys in group too didn't help right but I could not hold it. And I was just like, I'm sorry. I have to, like, I just ran to the bathroom, which ran through the group through room, like down a hall and into the bathroom. Um, Cause it was like, I was like sweating and like violently shaking. Uh-huh. I didn't know if I was going to throw up or shit my pants. Right. And um, it was kind of, it's, was kind of a big deal because I didn't wait for an old comer to come and take me to the bathroom or, staff to do it or anything and I didn't shake out before I went into the bathroom um which shaking out at lifeline was you know they just checked the seams of all of your clothes and inside of your shoes and inside of your mouth um and in your hair um all of those things and yeah so I didn't wait for that I just had to go and then I had to talk about it in group like why that was another thing um, that I was remembering was just that it went back for the group or for the staff. They saw it as it going back to like my entitlement, which was a character defect or compulsion. So you were <laughs> confronted and accused of being entitled because your body was screaming at you to go to the restroom. <laughs> go to the it's literally going to come out of you. Whether you like yeah. it or not, you had to do that. So you got in trouble for a biological function that you absolutely had to respond to. <laughs> yeah. It was super uncomfortable. I mean, now I don't really care. It's not embarrassing to me anymore. But I then it was just very uncomfortable because everyone in the group knew what was happening the whole time. That would have been the worst uh, part, I think. The whole group knew what was about to happen to uh-huh. me and all of staff knew what was about to happen to me. And yeah, it was, like I said, being a 17 year old, it was super awkward. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Um, I'm going to move on to how they kind of controlled your movements. They did belt looping for a while, but by the time you got there, they had not, they were not doing that anymore. But what did they do instead of belt looping yeah so you they would have someone keep their hand on your shoulder at all times if not two people Mm -hmm. so one for each shoulder it it was called shoulder or double shoulder um yeah so as a newcomer you were not allowed to like stand up or anything until an old comer came and put their hand on your shoulder and then walked you to wherever you're supposed to go Uh uh-huh like even the if the whole room. group was going <laughs> yeah they had to keep their hand on your shoulder the whole way to the restroom and then once you got to the stall then they would take it off so that they could shake out shake mm-hmm. you out mm-hmm. and then you could use the restroom but anytime in addition to going to the bathroom if you uh, got up to get your food or walking from the building to a car or from the car to the host home, you were shouldered and during those times too, right? Yeah, literally. Like I, the best, I remember so specifically, like it seemed so bizarre to me because I had to wait for an old comer to come put her hand on my shoulder mm-hmm. while I was sitting, you know, like 
stick straight and group with my hands on my knees. Then she would put her hand on my shoulder and then I could stand up after her hand was already on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then she wouldn't take her hand off my shoulder until I had sat down to lunch, like until I was completely sat down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a whole weird right. thing. <laughs> All about control, it sounds like. You know, another way they kept you from running away and controlled you, I assume. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The idea was about running, like, 100%. Right. Um, The program had what they call five phases. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, there's, can you explain what that was? I mean, there was five, but each phase had its own things that you had to do. Can you explain what the phases were? Yeah. And this part, some of this might be wrong or blurry. For me, it was different than most of the group because I was from out of state Uh and I didn't have like a host home or like a school, a high school in the area to go to. Right. Um, So I was like in the program for, you know, ever, but Mm -hmm. like all the phases. Um, First phase consists of like the shoulder double shoulder um what they call shadow so old comers not keeping their hand on your shoulder anymore but they're like following you everywhere Mm -hmm. whatever um and then tnr which is when you earn your shoes Mm -hmm. all of that is on first phase and then second phase i think it you so at that point you're considered an old comer Mm mm-hmm and then you, if you have a, a home that's considered a host home, you get to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to take newcomers with you. Okay. Or an, another old comer has to go with you. And then third phase, I feel like was pretty much the same. Maybe that's, I don't remember if that's when they started going to school. Okay. Because like I said, I didn't go to school. Right. Um, fourth phase, they were definitely st- like going to school and could have like a job, but, um, th- I believe they were still in the building at the end of the day, every single day uh-huh. for like a group. And then fifth phase was more of like, it's definitely more freedom. Like they could, um, start kind of hanging out with friends or like they were encouraged to start dating if it was like approved by staff, uh-huh. um, getting you know the same thing like getting jobs like playing sports again those kinds of things and what did you have Um, to do to actually graduate um so you had to i just remembered this but you had to like put in for graduation Uh is what it was called so like you kind of had to request like ask if you could even if you were even ready for that yet and Uh then if they said "Mm, we think you are then you had to write this like pages long (laughs) kind of an essay Uh um and the essay that gave you like a outline for all the things they wanted in it Uh so there was different parts that you had to answer questions to in the essay right and then um I had to read I don't know if it was all of it or a portion of it um, in front of like all of the staff members pretty much and all of the clinicians mm-hmm. and then my, my parents, um, and my grandparents were there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then the clinicians decide if you are ready to move on. Your parents are there with you too, kind right. of. Um, 
and they like if your parents said no they're not ready obviously you wouldn't um but yeah the clinicians ultimately decide if you graduate or not in that moment right now you mentioned something about dating you actually were required to date what what I guess what exactly did that mean what did you actually have to do yeah they really wanted you to start dating um but the lifeline wanted to know the ins and the outs of the person that you were going to date and they wanted to like interview that person <laughs> essentially before you started dating them um i didn't really date uh-huh. like during the program it was more when i was getting closer to like graduating the program uh-huh. um and i think part of that was just because i was in the program so much because i did my family was out of state right um, and I didn't have like friends in the state, you know, that I would have been allowed to really hang out with because the only friends I had were in the program right? or, or were considered ex phasers. So I wouldn't have been allowed to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, then I started college and I was still technically in lifeline and I kind of started dating, but it was a ways away. Mm-hmm. So it was more of just like an at that time I was already over 18 <laughs> and I think they were just kind of like we it's she's already gone now right I don't know I was yeah uh, essentially what they, their plan for anyone that lives there it was they would interview the person before you went out on that date with them mm-hmm. um and they would talk to your parents about it and they would talk to you about it and any concerns they had about that person but just thinking about it might not seem like a big deal <laughs> When, but if you think about being, you know, a teenager and having your dad meet someone alone is a big deal. But then make it being like, hey, do you mind driving to North Salt Lake to this rehab I've been in for the last eight months so that they can interview you? And then, you know, we can see if we can hang out like it was super uncomfortable. Right. That almost reminds me of like. 18th century or 19th century dating, you know, where everything was chaperoned, you know, and we just, that's kind of what it reminds me of, even though it's not, but. Yeah. And I think they might have done that with like friends of some phasers, uh-huh. um, that lived there. Uh-huh. I'm not like a hundred percent sure, but it, yeah. So we, I thought that part was so weird. I thought all of it was weird, but right. that part alone, I was like, I don't want to have friends anymore. Like, right. uh, save me the embarrassment. Yeah, really. Um, now, you also occasionally got to exercise. <laughs> Could you tell me what kind of exercise you yeah. did and if you got to go outside, how often? Yeah. Yeah, so we, most of our exercise was R- Richard Simmons videos. <laughs> so I still have sweat into the oldies memorized, I oh think. My. Um, but so that was an everyday thing for the most part. Um, there was quite, oh, I felt like the boys got to go outside and play basketball pretty frequently. Uh-huh. Um, at least if they were like an old cup considered like, third or fourth phase or something uh-huh. they'd be like okay we'll let the third phasers go play basketball with a clinician that liked basketball uh-huh. um sometimes we'd go outside but a lot of it too like if it was not watching richard simmons it was usually with like a staff member that was more athletically inclined and then we would do things like running ladders or mm-hmm. you know 
stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we had um, one staff member that had been in the Marine Corps actually, and that was like every morning if he was working, that was a thing. Like we would be doing push-ups or like you know running ladders. Um, I remember we were. De- I remember an instance of like doing planks. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a time where I had to go in front of the group and then someone from the boys side had to go in the front of the group and we had to see how long who could hold like a plank for longer. Oh my. Or something. And then it was like a matter of like which side of the group got to go to lunch first or something. Okay. It was so, it was kind of weird stuff like that. Right. Um, I know compared to other programs, it probably wasn't the most like physically exhausting, but there was times where it was like, you know, people would get hurt, like, especially running ladders inside the building, like on that cheap carpet that's Uh super thin and rough, um, like in socks, nevertheless. Oh, that's right. Without shoes. Well, God, wouldn't they slip and fall all the time? All the time. (laughs) What happened if somebody got hurt? It was not really seen as, like, a medical emergency. Um, like, I had a friend that got really hurt that has had, like, problems even, you know, into her adult life from that injury that wasn't, like, taken seriously. Um, for me, like, I had lots of knee surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, and still, like, I struggle with my knee so badly just because I spent a year there without any of like the rehab I actually needed. Oh, like right. I had just had, I had literally just had a major knee surgery and went to lifeline a couple months later. So I never finished like physical therapy. Um, and that wasn't something that was even an option that lifeline saw. Right. Did you see kids actually throw up from exercising? Yeah, that was pretty common. Um, and I like for kids who were not athletically inclined to like in any way, shape or form, or just weren't, didn't, I don't know, weren't in, in shape to lifeline standards or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it was miserable and it was something that was seen as like them just not taking care of themselves and kind of used their weight as an example of like why they are where they are in life you know, like why they're, you know, you're lazy. Like, this is why you're making these decisions at home. Like, this is why you're so unhealthy. This is like why you're an addict. Like it all goes back to your core issues, you know, like you're addicted to food, obviously. But they followed it. (laughs) Yeah, it was just bizarre, but it was, like thinking about it i don't i mean you didn't really have an option um you just kind of had to do it or else you were confronted so um so the poor people that threw up which was not their fault they basically got in trouble for vomiting is what you're saying yeah Mm -hmm. uh well i also know um we talked about how Lifeline advertised things like you would get to go horseback riding or whitewater rafting or skiing did you ever get to do any of those things? No, I had, I think, one instance where a staff member that I think she genuinely cared about me uh-huh. <laughs> for the, the most part, but um, 
when I got onto fourth phase, she took me and another girl to a water park in Utah. Mm-hmm. That, that other girl was also on fourth phase. Um, but that was kind of like a very special exception. Like I said, like I didn't, I was from out of state, so I didn't get to do the things like with my family on weekends or right anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe she just felt bad for me and that girl was also from out of state. Mm-hmm. So um, that was kind of a one-time exception. But I, I mean, just talking to my mom even like, I know that they thought a part of that cost was going towards things that maybe I would find some fulfillment in. Mm-hmm. What, when you say cost, you, are you talking about the price of the program? How much money? Yeah. And, and yeah. Just out of curiosity, how much was that? Do you remember? So I just talked to, so for my program, I when I talked to him on Friday, actually, after our call, um, she said it was about $4,000 a month. Um, and I think the price kind of varied based on different things uh-huh. for different kids. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, it was $4,000 a month, which for my family was a big deal. Right. <laughs> um, my dad, like my, like I said, I had a parent that was an educator and, um, a parent that worked, you know, part-time as an accountant. So <laughs> it was, and a lot of siblings, Right. So it was a big expense for them. My dad used his inheritance to pay for that program. Um, and he, his parents weren't even dead yet. Like that, he took his inheritance early wow. to pay for that. So wow. it was it was a big cost. And they really believed, you know, my mom said she really believed we were doing things like going horseback riding or mm-hmm. that we would go whitewater rafting or skiing or that I would have active activities like that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So, and it yeah. was not, it was the one time you said was just a rare exception. Yeah. That was like the highlight <laughs> of my program. It was so exciting. Um, the other thing too, that, I don't know if you were going to ask me this later, but um, what's just kind of those promises that Lifeline gave my parents was just that I would be getting like therapy with a clinician regularly. Yeah. Uh huh. And, and and that didn't happen. My right? mom, no, my mom believed it. It. I would obviously they knew that it was kind of group therapy, therapy, but she thought I would be meeting with the clinician at least once a week. You mm-hmm. know. Um, and I was lucky if it was like once every three months and that was generally just right before my parents came to town to do like a family session. Right. Um, so now looking back, I kind of felt like he was really just like kind of figuring out like, cause he wasn't in group all the time either. He was hardly ever in group actually. Mm-hmm. So kind of figuring out where I was at in the program and then wow. t- having something to talk to my parents about the next so you day know what to say right so yeah it was kind of bizarre but it just you know mm-hmm. as I get older I didn't talk to my parents about this forever like mm-hmm. literally until this year and it's been a long long time right um you know just the things that they were promised that never happened mm-hmm. um and that w- I wasn't allowed to talk about or tell them Right. You know, it's just crazy to me. Right. Um, 
speaking of family, they claimed or said that they were family-oriented program and they had open meetings. And I think they called them family support nights, maybe. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that, what an open meeting was and what happened in each one? Yeah, so um, we would all set up the chairs prior to, well, prior to, prior to the parents coming, we had a group where like you just kind of decided, voted if someone got to move up in a phase or someone would get confronted and move back in a phase. And then we would set up all the chairs for the family support night or whatever they called it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we would do this weird chant <laughs> as they started to let the parents walk in uh -huh. um, where you're like clapping your hands, like on your thighs and yeah. And talking about, it just talked about like the different phases basically. Uh -huh. And then uh, a clinician would generally say something at the beginning, talk about something in the group, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and they would announce like if someone was moving up in a phase or down in a phase sometimes um like let's say like a fifth phaser would talk about you know like hey my name is so-and-so this was my drug list lifeline has changed my life in this way and this way and all of those things um and then they would kind of pass the mic along through the parents mm -hmm. um so a family would stand up and they would let's if it was my family they would stand up and then i would stand up and i would ha be holding my own microphone and they would say whatever like it just kind of depended what phase you were on to be honest with you like right. if you were brand new obviously they'd say like this was the hardest decision we've ever made like we love you we miss you so much but we're glad that you're getting the help that you need uh -huh. we know you'll do so great here all of those things um and you just basically say love you mom love you dad you know whatever right, exactly uh -huh. and then and then you sit down mm -hmm. and then um at some point i think it was like when you earned your shoes actually that you got to if your parents were there um you got to sit and talk with your parents as long as a newcomer was with you supervising you mm -hmm. for five minutes after the group um if you're out of state like me most of the time that meant like i was calling my parents if okay. staff had time to help let me call my parents uh -huh. um for a few minutes mm -hmm. um or else like my grandparents would come to the group mm -hmm. and one of the times you called your parents there was an issue you wanted to talk about about when they were physically abusive because it was a big issue for you what happened mm -hmm. during that phone call um it was just first of all talking to your parents at least for me about that stuff in general is like it's really hard because uh -huh. i i didn't ever want them i still don't this is where i get emotional i still don't ever want them to feel bad uh-huh right i know um sorry that take your time it's, it's okay. just <laughs> um 
I didn't even think I was going to cry this time. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> but, um, yeah, so I just, I said, and mind you, I had actually, um, I was in a little bit higher of a face and I had brought it up to the group, actually, just something I, cause he talked about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, just something I was struggling with. And I, the group kind of actually was like, you know, have you talked to your parents about this, whatever. So I kind of thought it was going to be received differently uh-huh. when the call was happening. So I called my parents and I just said, listen, there's something I want to talk to you about specifically like the incident where like, you were banging my head on the tile floor of the bathroom and like my siblings were scared. Like they were like screaming for you to stop. Right. And that was like something that is seared in my mind forever. Uh And my parents kind of started talking like, well, we were just so worried about you. And my, at the time she was called my TPC or my treatment plan counselor. Right. She just said, you know, I grew up in a Latin family and getting knocked around a little bit is normal. You know, your parents are doing the best they can't like really dismissed it. Mm -hmm. And the end of the call basically just left me feeling like shit. Like I wasn't taking accountability for what I was putting my parents through. And the thing that also sucks about that is I see that impacting my relationship with my parents still today. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to talk to them about a lot of these things because it was kind of almost like they were almost brainwashed in their own sense. Mm-hmm. You know, that whatever lifeline was telling them was, you know, Bible. And that's just kind of how it is. So all of those things were really dismissed um, and just seen as me not taking accountability. So, yeah, it was a weird experience for sure. So, and I just wanted to stress, the person who told you that being abused and knocked around is normal was actually an untrained teenage peer staff, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Untrained is the the important part. Yeah. I think she's like a couple years older than me. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, I can't imagine a responsible therapist telling a child that being physically abused was their fault and it was normal. So, yeah. Which leads me to your sexual trauma. Didn't they kind of do the same thing and made you take responsibility for it? Yeah, it was, it was a weird, weird experience. I don't think I, when I look back, I don't think that they were as hard on me as they were with some of the other, like people in the survivor group. Right in that sense. Um, but a few things were really weird. Like my clinician, my parents came for a visit. Mm -hmm. One of the few times, you know, I meet with my clinician and my parents and that was something they were talking about (laughs) that they wanted to talk about. And, um, he asked me like in front of my parents, if I felt guilty, about my rape because it felt good. And that for me was really jarring and uncomfortable because I, all of the shit, 
all of the bad feelings and like fears I had had already, like Mm -hmm. were just confirmed by the the freaking therapist. Like the rape that my parents had me go confess to a bishop for was just now like being seen as even more of a, I don't know how to explain it. It just was really that for me solidified that they all thought it was just me asking for it is how it felt. So they blamed you (laughs) and basically made you feel like it was your fault. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That, yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, him asking me that even, I mean, it wouldn't have been fine for him to ask if it was just him and I, but especially in front of my parents, like Mm -hmm. for me, that was a traumatizing experience itself. Because I felt like my parents already had certain feelings that it was my fault anyways. Right. So that was just weird. And then my parents, I remember also saying, like, I really wanted to report it. Yeah. And in my small town, my parents really didn't, weren't super about it. (laughs) Um, Just because they, I have younger siblings. It's a small town. They didn't really want my siblings to be embarrassed and the program was pretty supportive of that so it was more of a situation where you know the program talked to my parents and to me and like kind of what everyone settled on was that a detective in my hometown that is kind of friends with my dad was going to like let me sit down with him and tell him everything but like no charges were ever pressed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like investigation ever really happened. It was just, I think it was kind of like in a, like a way to appease me, which is so mm-hmm. weird to even say. Right. <laughs> Did they actually discourage you from pressing charges? It felt really, yeah. I, <laughs> They encouraged me to not is how it felt. <laughs> right, right, okay. Um, so yeah, discouraged it just for like the sake of maintaining like peace at home with my family and my siblings. It, it sounded like they weren't concerned about what you were going through, but it was more about what every how everybody else felt about it. Oh my God, this is embarrassing. That was the issue, not what happened to you. That you were traumatized. That seemed to be lost yeah. in all this. Which it was so weird because like I said earlier, they had that survivors group Uh for people in that situation, which they only allowed girls to be in that group. Um, And the woman that ran that group just didn't have like any sort of real certification to be doing that kind of work Mm -hmm. for kids. It wasn't like a licensed therapist or clinician, anything. It was just this woman who was, you know, trying to help a bunch of young girls navigate like their sexual trauma in life. Um, which I am shocked how many of us were in that group, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. there was a lot of people. So it, it was just biz- bizarre that they felt like she was, she could handle that. But it also, I think about it and I don't think that they had any intention of actually healing that trauma. Like I said earlier, I think it was just more of like, you talk about everything and then like, we're going to kind of make you feel like shit until you're ready to comply with what we and your parents think you should be doing. So you really just never got help with the thing you really needed help with. Yeah, for sure. 
And and the person, from what you said, was had no training. Again, another untrained person that was clueless, basically. Right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. And she was like that woman that was like, your wedding day can't be special if you're wearing red lipstick all the time. Like, <laughs> you know, that same woman was trying to, like, counsel survivors of rape and, you know, other crazy stuff. So it just, that makes no sense to me how anyone just, how any adult justified it. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't get it either. Um, So basically what we've been talking about, you're basically forced to reveal personal information to a large group of people sometimes, sometimes your parents, sometimes in this group, but to a lot of kids on top of a stool on display for everyone that made you really uncomfortable, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I would say too, this is one thing I don't know if I've ever told you. I felt like, especially even in like girls group, there were things like kit. There were some girls that should, should not have been in there or like hearing some of the things it was very sexually explicit at all times. Right. And in like extreme detail mm-hmm. and I don't even think my mom would be able to sit through, to be honest with you, as a grown woman, she could not have sat through that group. So it was extremely uncomfortable all the time, whether you were talking or whether you were just sitting there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was so uncomfortable all the time. Right. And just because it always had to be taken to the most extreme place any issue could go. It didn't feel, it wasn't until it was like as extreme and extremely uncomfortable that staff or the group saw it as like you were being honest. So the would, would it be fair to say that their style of therapy, you know, being in a group, you know, spilling your guts, your personal information, would you say that was actually traumatizing? Yeah, for sure. Not helpful. Definitely. Right. It, no. Everybody has their own style of what might be helpful. Do you think you would have benefited more from individualized personal one-on-one therapy versus the group therapy? In other words, it just wasn't a good fit for you? Yeah, it was not a good fit for me. (laughs) Okay. Like, I know, like a shy kid. Why would a shy kid be able to function in a group? That would just be traumatizing in itself, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I assume, but I'll just ask you, did they ever take that into consideration, you know, at all? No, it was, yeah, no, this, if you were shy, like it was just going, you were going to be confronted and confronted until you got on, got with the program, literally. <laughs> like, right. Right. Um, I'm scrolling to the next question here. Oh. When you were talking about how you were forced to take responsibility for your sexual sexual trauma, didn't something else happen when you had a job while you were in the program? What was that? Yeah. I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I forgot to talk about it before. Yeah. Yeah, no, I got a job um, working at a mall, and some random guy in the mall came by and, like, slapped my butt, and... I remember telling my manager, I was like, oh, that was so uncomfortable. And I was really lucky like that 
at the time I had a manager that was like an example of like a normal human. Right. Cause it was his, but his response was bizarre to me because I had been in the program for so long. He was like, Oh my God, like, are you okay? Immediately like called security. It was like furious with this man was like, do you need to go home? Like, this is not okay. And I was like, Oh, that's so weird that he's having that response to it, which is a normal response. And then I went back to the building after my shift and I told it was actually that same woman that ran our survivors group. And she just started making comments about like how I was dressing. Cause at that point I didn't have to just wear my weird t-shirt anymore. And her comments were just like, the way you're dressing is asking, like asking for men to treat you that way. (laughs) You know, she made it very clear that it was not really about him, but it was about me and that people were going to treat me a certain way because of how I was dressing. And now (laughs) that is just, those kinds of beliefs are so far from who I am as a person at all that that was traumatizing itself. And I think it just, that also solidified for me that no one there was actually there to give a shit about what I was experiencing or my trauma that I really did need the help for. So yeah, that was (laughs) another weird. (laughs) Well, it's more of the same, more blame the victim. I mean, I don't see how that's therapeutic and call me crazy, but... (laughs) Um, so the program did the same thing to another kid who was raped while in Lifeline. You actually witnessed how he was treated in group. What happened? Yeah. Um, there was an incident when I was in the program that another, I don't even know what we were called. If we were called residents or <laughs> what the hell, I don't even remember what we were called, but an, a kid was raped by another kid in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, on the guy side I don't know if that's telling too much but yeah. um yeah and because I was on the girl side like it what I didn't see as many of the details so it was just weird we like came into group and all of a sudden like he was sitting on the stool in front of the group and it was this whole huge thing about how he wasn't taking responsibility for what happened and like if he tried to say like no i didn't want it like it was like the group ripped him apart basically and just said like you're lying like you where are you you're not taking accountability for anything basically is what they said like you put yourself in that situation like you're not taking accountability like all these weird things the other kid that supposedly did it like it was convenient because his parents like pulled him out of the program. So he wasn't in that group, which I thought was kind of fucked up to be honest. Wow. Like, or I mean, you shouldn't have to like sit there in a group with your perpetrator in general, but like you also shouldn't have to be like belittled in that way in front of a whole group of kids. Um, so that was really weird. And he stayed in the program and it was always a, a thing like that he was like <sighs> so the I don't know so it was weird because it was constantly brought up I felt like whenever he got in trouble so 
because he was a rape victim, they blamed him instead of helping him, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. for sure. Blame the victim was their method of treatment. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to something a little easier to talk about. How about the host homes versus um, the Fleck? You, they had both when you were there. So I guess what, let's start with the host homes. What were the host homes like? Um, yeah, so host homes were generally in, I would say the greater Salt Lake City area, but there were host homes that were like almost two hours away mm -hmm. sometimes. Right. Um, then at the host homes, like the room that you stayed in, it was like completely cleared out for the most part, except for the beds that had been approved by the program uh -huh. um, that you would sleep in. Something I also just recently remembered was that I ha you had to take your sheets with you everywhere you went, your own sheets. Right. Which is just like one of those weird things I had right. forgotten. <laughs> um, and then your old comer would go through all your sheets in your bag every night. Um, and they generally did that when you would get in the shower same thing with the bathroom that you used at the host home. It was like all cleared out with the exception. Well, it was all cleared out. Actually, you had like your own shampoo that you brought that your old comer shook out every night and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, and you had a timed seven minute shower. I think mm -hmm. that might've been when you, it might've changed. It might've been, I don't remember. I think when you got farther in the program, it, you got more time or something. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, so you basically get naked, get in a shower. Your old comer goes through all your stuff. Um, they hand you your shampoo while you're showering. They, when you're done with your shower, they hand you, like, your towel and your underwear to get in. And then when you get out, they give you, like, your sh shirt or whatever you're wearing to bed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then you would get... They called it locked in, but I don't really remember if there was like an actual lock from the outside of the door that the parents locked. Right. But there were, there was like an alarm system. Right. At, at every house, if I remember right. So you couldn't like open a window or a door without it going off. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Did you, um, how much sleep did you get? It really just depended. So, I, it, it's hard to say, like, I want to say a good night was like six hours of sleep, but you could, I mean, especially if you had to drive very far to a host home, like it, it really cut into the night. Cause by the time you get there, then you have dinner there. And then, um, you go over your MIs, like you write your moral inventories right. at night. And then you, your old comer reviews it with you and you talk about all of your problems, <sighs> especially if there, you know, there was like two or three of you, you know, uh -huh. it was just like, took, it just felt like it took forever. Uh -huh. Um, and then once the time that was all done, like you would go to sleep and then you'd have to wake up early in the morning and like pack up your sheets and everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hopefully eat breakfast and get on the road. Right. Um, so yeah, it really depended. Sometimes we had like a hour or two of sleep. Sometimes it was six hours, but six hours was not super common. I didn't feel like. Right. 
And out of curiosity, who was in charge in the host home? Was it the old comer or was it the parents? Yeah, it was the old comer. Right. <laughs> Which was that I remember at the very beginning. And like I said, because I was out of state, I went to host homes a little more frequently mm-hmm. um, than the people that were local to the area. So it was so bizarre to me when it was just like the old comer was almost like telling the parents how things had to be like if someone's little sister kept looking at me like they the old comer would be like you need to tell her to quit looking at her like Mm -hmm. or just tell her sister like she's clicking with her or whatever like learning those weird rules was i almost felt like the parents were learning along with me at the beginning because mm-hmm. they were just going with it. Whatever the old comer said was just how it was and how Lifeline intended it to be. So they didn't question anything at all, which I thought was so weird. Right. So, yeah, it's hard for people to understand. I think that even though the parents are in the home, it doesn't mean they're supervising. Generally, or at least from what I remember, it was the old comer and the newcomers off doing their thing in the bathroom or in the phaser room for the most part. Yeah, it really was like, by the time we got there, we would eat with the family, but then we generally just went into the room or the bathroom and then the room. Right. And we were there for the rest of the night. Right. So now we know what the host homes, can you compare it to the flick and the, the flick is called the family living center, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. Tell us about that. Um, Yeah, so it is like a lockdown building. Uh Lifeline in general is a lockdown building. Um, But the Family Living Center was built behind Lifeline, and I believe that they don't do host homes anymore. They just have everyone stay there. Uh And there's like a wing that is the girl's side and one that is the guy's side, and kind of in between is like an office that separates it where the staff they called it the bubble. Uh-huh. Um, and anyways, I guess you just, it's kind of the same drill, but you're sure there's more people generally staying there. Um, so you, you're sharing a bathroom. Obviously it's all the girls on the girl side. So you're and it, just kind of, it, it's so weird to think about it now. Cause we were just like going through the motions, like, it was like muscle memory, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we had our routine. We would eat dinner really quick and, quick and then um, we would start like doing showers with your old comers. And, you know, it's just, I believe they had two showers in the bathroom um, with just like little curtains, <laughs> but yeah, same deal. Your old comer goes through all your stuff. They hand you your underwear and your shampoo mm-hmm. through the shower curtain and then come out, you get dressed, you put your sheets on your bed, um, do your MIs for the night. The only thing that was different was like you were physically locked in those rooms right. at night and you couldn't open those windows um, at all. Um, if you needed anything, there was a button that you could push that would go into that, like intercom, that office uh-huh. that the staff members would generally be in. Uh-huh. Um, this was something else I was thinking about. <laughs> Maybe I didn't tell you before, but if there wasn't, when I think about it, there was not a 
enough staff members there at night. Like, okay, there were times sometimes you would push the intercom button, but they would be helping someone else. Uh-huh. So there was you're just kind of stuck there, and in that situation that we were in, like I, at least for me, it seems like there should have been a requirement for more staff at night. Like I think there was one girl's staff and one guy's staff there for the whole building. So. Um, yeah, you would push the button on the intercom if you really, really needed something and they could come unlock the door and help you with whatever. But yeah. Did, did they have like, um, fire safety procedures? Oh. Like how would you get out if something happened? Like there was a fire, if you're locked in these rooms, I mean, how did they even have any kind of procedures? No, I don't remember anything like even doing a fire drill or anything to be honest with you right um i think they could push a button and open like unlock all of the doors maybe i don't know right because i don't think i really ever had that instance happen right right um generally generally the staff came and let us out each in the morning so right um there was a time that something did happen when you were locked in a room with a newcomer who got violent and this is one of the problems with being locked in. Can you explain what happened? Yeah. Um, she was a girl that was a lot bigger than me. And I just spoke up and she was standing over me. And it was just a very odd experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, she was naked. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. I started freaking out. She just dropped down onto, like, my neck and chest. And I, it was terrifying. I have asthma anyway, so I'm, like, super anxious about anything, like, being even on my neck or chest. So I did get, like, I got out from under her, um, and I pushed the button, and staff came, but it was also, I don't remember if they had cameras or anything in there. Like, even if they did, like, the, the fact that I even had to push that button, I don't know. It was just that really scared me well, right. for the rest of my time there because I didn't or with that girl that pulled her toenails out in the night, you know, like you didn't know what well, night always seemed a little scary, I guess. Like you didn't know what was going to happen and everyone was kind of in like a, just a frantic situation. It seems like that mm-hmm. people were doing crazy stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. So like the fact that there was only two staff members at a time there, I would, and I don't know. Obviously, if there was cameras, they weren't actually watching us. It was just weird. Yeah, I mean, and you're lucky that that situation didn't get worse. You know. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, what? Who decided where you stayed, host home versus the flick? I mean, or how was that decision made? You know. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. They would, we would sit in a line at the end of the day and then they would read out what host home you were going to. Uh-huh. Um, but I think it was decided, the general impression I got was that the kids that were from like Salt Lake, like especially like downtown Salt Lake area, mm-hmm. they generally stayed in the flick more often. Um, especially if they weren't their home wasn't like approved as a host home okay um which if you had a mom that was gonna listen to music if new if you were there like they wouldn't 
be allowed that privilege. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, those kids would stay in the flick more often just because they knew the area. So they were more likely to run away or like have druggy friends pick them up or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, people that were from out of state, like me, we got to stay at host homes more frequently. Like I remember I stayed, you know, over Christmas, like with a family and over Easter with a family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt lucky in that sense. Cause it generally was, I don't know when you, and I didn't get to see my family every week. So it just felt more like normalcy, I guess, right. in a way. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Which would you say was a better experience, the flick or the host home? You know, it really just kind of depended. Okay. <laughs> like, there were host homes I just really did not want to go to. Um, Why was that? Just, I don't know. Like, <laughs> this sounds rude, but just sometimes it was like, oh, different kind of family it just felt weird i don't know how to even explain it okay there's just times it just didn't feel i didn't have a good feeling about being there whatever and i was just like i'd rather stay at the flick or i'm i'm actually like really allergic to cats i love them but i'm really allergic and some homes would have pets and i would just be like please like can you not send me there like my eyes are like burning you know and it's so hard to sleep when you're like wheezing all night so um like those and i would have much rather stayed in the flick um but some time like some host homes were really nice to you too like would make you a nice breakfast every morning um or you know would make sure that they would get approval so that they could play a game with you or something before bed that night right stuff like that um sometimes at the flick you would have really I felt like some of the staff members at the flick were like, did their best too, uh-huh. like to make it an enjoyable experience. <laughs> um, and sometimes I felt like there was staff there that were just like, please go to bed. Like it, it was just, yeah, it just kind of depended, I guess. Yeah. It sounds kind of hit or miss. Like, yeah. Well, I think this is another good place to take a break. So we'll stop, Kay. take a break and we'll come right back. Okay. Perfect.